I'm really excited to welcome uh, my friend uh, and friend of the congregation, whether you knew it or not, uh, John Chandler. And I've known John for a number of years through Ecclesia Net, um, our friends. Uh, he and others planted uh, Austin Mustard Seed Church. Uh, how many years ago now? T ten or so years ago, give or take. Uh, John's really old, so time works differently for him. Uh, but uh, in our in our time, uh, just in the last uh, couple days, uh, John has remarked several times about how familiar uh, both Durham and Oak Church is for him, and, and how much affinity we have with those guys. And um, and, and I think that's true. Uh, John's been uh, really uh, helpful to me as I as I've learned and grown in, in ministry, um, some, in some ways that he knows of in our interactions, but also in some ways that uh, he might not. Uh, he, he's run for years a podcast called Sermon Smith um, that uh, is about the art and craft of sermon write, writing and preparation, but also delivery. And uh, I love uh, some of the content on there, and I've, I've been exposed to so many different kinds of, of preaching through that in, in, um, in uh, it's really helped my preaching and as I interact with uh, some of our preachers here and uh, just the ethos of that site and of John's ministry of equipping people uh, for ministry and, and, and sending uh, people in a, in a young and really transient place like Austin or uh, Durham uh, has been really inspiring to me. Um, now John and his family are in Arizona uh, and that's a pretty new thing, so he's still getting settled there, and uh, he might mention a little bit more about that in the organization uh, Help One Now that he's a part of that, that lets uh, us bring him to you today. So uh, if you would welcome him with a round of applause. Morning. You are so much better at that than our church ever, ever was, and still he was critiquing you about it earlier. I do have one critique of your church. Well, maybe this is just of Chris, but I would never consider a cup of chili to be a proper receptacle <laughs> that you just bragged about. Um, yeah. And I'm also very sensitive about my age. So... All right. So, hey, it, it really is. It is it is a blessing to be with you. And it does very much feel um, just in so many ways meeting in an old Baptist church. Yours is way nicer than ours uh, was. Ours was built in the 70s. So the carpet is much more orange than yours is. Uh, we would have taken rose colored or whatever you might call this any day. We finally just embraced it, though, when we called the building the Orange Chapel because we're like, if it's here, we might as well just go all in. But in so many ways, there, it, does feel, um, it does feel like I'm being back among my people. And I'm in this unique place right now. We moved to Austin uh, 11 years ago. We left last fall actually rather quickly because we really just came to a place where we determined that for health reasons, our family could not thrive in the humidity and the pollens and all that of Austin. And so we moved back to Arizona. So now it is this season um, where, for the first time in my life, I'm working for a nonprofit. I, I have always worked at a church. And so I'm having this experience of trying to find a church. And um, 
so there's this, there's this process, even as we do that, of visiting churches where there is grief, right? Because when I go to visit a church, it is, it is not these people that I have grown to dearly love for the last 10 years. It's a bunch of strangers, and they don't do things the right way, and they don't sing songs the right way. And now I have so much, well, I don't have that much, but now I have more empathy for this experience of shopping for a church. So it's this it is. It is this sense of grief that I feel where multiple times, you know, my wife has looked at me as we've been walking out, and she's like, how are you today? <laughs> um, so it is good to be with you for that reason. But it is also, I've discovered, this place of longing, this place of longing to, uh, to come and be a part of a church where there is this sense of being among a people who are being called toward something greater than ourselves being called towards God's purpose, being to called towards God's mission in the world, that even as Jesus came, as we celebrate in Epiphany, even as Jesus was this light, even as Jesus was this revelation, that we follow in that. We, we continue the mission of Jesus in the world. And I say all that to say that I, I am, I've been... Um, sad, alarmed, surprised at how often I don't feel like I get that sense as we visited churches. And man, I've listened to, to, I've listened to so many sermons before I even, you know, visit churches. Um, because so much, you know, I go to a church and it feels like the experience is like, what is this word for you to feel good about today? Or what is this word um, for you to feel like you can be a little bit better person this week? But we gather to be called to something beyond ourselves. And certainly we hope to find comfort in our brokenness. And certainly we hope to find rest in Jesus as well. But out of that, we move into the light. We move into this work of revelation that we have been called to do. And so all that to say, part of the reason I feel a kinship here is, um, you know, even listening to Chris's sermon from last week, uh, I've, I've listened to more than one of Chris's sermons along the way here and there, and knowing that there is a similar uh, kinship. There's a similar heart to stand up here and retell the story together and call one another together towards that purpose, towards that work that we are called to do. So I'm thankful for the work that you are doing here um, to be a light, to be a people called to a mission here. So all that to say, last week, um, Chris uh, spoke on Jesus' words on his sermon in his hometown. And it came from Luke chapter 4, and it, it's a story of Jesus coming back, and he's invited to speak in the synagogue service in his hometown. And he stands up, and he unrolls the scroll, and he preaches this message of hope. He preaches this message. He doesn't preach a message. What am I saying? He, he reads a text of hope, and he reads a text of restoration. He reads a text that is a text of deep longing for the people because there's so much prophecy tied to the words that he reads that day. And then as I believe um, I, as I believe it ended in the text that you had last week, he just rolls up the scroll and says, this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And I wish, for your sake, I wish that I could come and just read a text and then tell you this scripture would now be fulfilled in your hearing. And I'm sure that you wish that when Chris preaches, he could likewise just read the text and say this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing and roll it up and be done and all would speak well of him. But I am not Jesus and Chris is certainly not Jesus. So somehow for that reason we have to say more about the text each week 
Um, and we also have to, to bring you know, some kind of understanding for what it means for us today. But I also certainly wish that all would speak well of it when I'm done. But I can also tell you that Jesus' time did not end there. And I think it's rather interesting that this text was broken up this way because the story does continue. And by the end of our reading today, we will see not only that they spoke well of Jesus after he just read the scripture, but they were ready to throw him off the cliff before he got out of town. And things will take a rather quick and a rather rapid turn. So with that said, can I have our reader for today come up and read for us? Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, You hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow in Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove them out of the town, and led them to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, that they might hurl them off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks be to God. So we have this text from last week, this text of... Uh, looking ahead towards this time of jubilee, looking ahead towards this time of God setting aside a people who will flourish, a people who will thrive, a people who experience the fullness of shalom, the fullness of everything will be as God intended it to be. And so they read that scripture, and when they are done, Jesus says, this will be fulfilled in your hearing. And so for them, there is this deep longing and hope that this flourishing, that this jubilee is about to be restored because they were an oppressed people. There is a, there is a city, that, uh, an ancient city, that is very close to where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It's actually only about five miles away from Nazareth, and it's never mentioned in the Bible. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in, in the New Testament, but we know much about it from history, and, and one event there is alluded to, but it's a city called Sepphoris. And Sepphoris, when Jesus was very, very young, uh, there was a, re a rebel named Judas, who that's the illusion and that's elsewhere in Scripture, but there was a rebel named Ju Judas who came and uh, basically started a rebellion in Sepphoris. Ultimately, the city of Sepphoris was burned to the ground, and ultimately that was squelched. The Romans came in with all of their armies, and they squelched that rebellion. And then during the time of Jesus' childhood, Sepphoris was rebuilt. So being five miles away, uh, perhaps visible, but certainly familiar to the people of Jesus' small town, is this city that represents not only this squashed rebellion by their oppressors, 
But even perhaps um, Jesus, the son of a tecton, which we sometimes say would be a carpenter, but really would probably mean that he was a stone worker of some kind because tecton, like tectonics, means stone. Perhaps, perhaps Jesus' father Joseph and perhaps even Jesus himself learning the family trade had traveled many times to assist in the work rebuilding this town that had been destroyed and rebuilding it into almost like, as was often done, a little Rome with all of the splendor and all of the glory and the amphitheater and all that. So we have this people who lived near and were surrounded by this story of oppression. And, and all along, they had this longing to be these thriving people of God again but they were under the weight of Rome, under the weight of their oppressors, under the weight of their taxes. So for Jesus to come in and read this text, and it's this text of this, this promise waiting to be fulfilled, this recovery of sight for the blind, right? Uh, the, the poor will be restored. And so Jesus names all of their longing in the midst of this oppression that they are up against. And he says, today this will be fulfilled in your hearing. But then Jesus goes on, and, and, I, and, and I don't want to uh, leave us with the idea, and this actually occurred to me for the first time. I've, I've studied this text many times and preached on this text a number of times. And I've always had this sense of, um, man, Jesus was really sticking it to his hometown, right? When what, and what we're about to get to. And I, I don't think that was the case. Maybe I'm just growing older and wiser, or maybe I'm wrong today, and maybe I was right before. Um, but I think there was a deep care and empathy for his people, right? This, this is for you. This flourishing, this shalom, this jubilee is due to you, and I hope you have it. But then he goes on to say, surely you will say to me, uh, physician, heal yourself. Surely you will say to me, Jesus, do that now. You have come and you're saying you are the person to bring this. So do it. Bring it back. Remove our oppressors. And then he goes on to tell them two stories, a story of Elijah and a story of Elisha. And he tells them stories about how both of these um, heroes of their faith had been sent on to other places, not to people like them, to a widow in Zarephath, to Naaman the Syrian, had, had gone to people outside of their bounds and healed them and brought them restoration. And even in saying that much, it riled everything for them, right? It riled everything for them, this sense of, no, 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 no. Are you saying that the recovery that the restoration, that the shalom, the flourishing, the jubilee, that you're not going to bring it here? You're saying that it's going to be bigger than this? You're saying that it's going to be wider than this? You're saying it's going to be beyond what we would consider the safe and secure boundaries where we think it should be? And so they decide to take him and throw him over a cliff. Yesterday I was reading... Um, uh, reading a book right now by a indigenous American theologian named Randy Woodley called Shalom, Shalom and the Community of Creation. As even as I was getting ready to continue doing some work on this, um, and this is what he had to say in there. He says this. He said, Shalom is communal, holistic, and tangible. There is no private or partial Shalom. 
The whole community must have shalom or no one has shalom. As long as there are hungry people in a community that is well-fed, there can be no shalom. Where there are homeless and jobless people amidst the employed and wealthy, shalom cannot exist. Shalom is not for the many, while a few suffer, nor is it for the few, while many suffer. It must be available for everyone. And then he goes on even to talk about it. He, he read this quote. I'm like, I wonder if I can somehow um, connect this idea of shalom to jubilee. Like, I wonder if the Old Testament principles connect. And I kept reading yesterday morning. This changed my sermon, right? Because then I kept reading, and it's like, in the next chapter, talks about shalom and jubilee. And he talks about jubilee connecting from Luke 4. I'm like, this is exactly what I needed today. So we have this story of jubilee, this story of shalom, this story of flourishing, this story of restoration that Jesus comes and promises to his people. But Jesus also comes and promises to all people. And it is for all. It, there is no shalom until there is shalom. There is no restoration for the few until there is restoration for all because it is this communal holistic interconnected reality that we as the people of Jesus now in Durham and in Phoenix and throughout the world are to participate with Jesus in bringing. The phrase that I like to think of it as is we are to be the instigators of Jubilee. Oak Church, you are called to be the instigators of Jubilee. So even as you sit and rest in the words of Jesus that were shared last week, even as you um, find rest and find hope and find longing and desire to experience that restoration, that recovery, that fullness, that flourishing, even as you hope for that, you also participate in that. You also co-create that work with Jesus, with God's purpose that is being spread forward into the world today. We are called to be instigators of Jubilee. So I was imagining a little bit like, what does this look like? What might this look like for us to be instigators of Jubilee? And I was reminded of uh, this story, this is actually a story, Chris mentioned that I now work for a, a nonprofit called Help One Now. And one of the things that we do is we work in countries around the world. We come alongside local leaders, and uh, now all of them are pastors, actually. We come alongside pastors, and we just help them to meet the needs in their community with what, whatever resources they say, like, this is what I'm trying to do, this is what we can do well. And so we try to come alongside them. And one of our leaders has started a, basically a business training program where they figured out rather than we just kind of help meeting the needs of the people uh, who are in poverty, what if we help them really take steps to move out of it? And he, so he's discovered and he's now sent hundreds of people through this program where they train them to start a business, give them a few startup funds, and they're just seeing them flourish. And so this is a woman named Emma Bett. And Emma Bett, uh, Emma Bett is a beautiful, amazing woman. And even in her own words, she is a strong woman. But she started a business, um, and not too soon, because shortly after she went through the program and short, shortly after she started a business, her husband became ill and was not able to work. But somehow through her business, she's actually started two businesses, somehow through her businesses now, she has been able to support her family. 
but even beyond the work that she has done to support her family, she is now uh, paying the, the education costs for five other children that are in her neighborhood. And beyond just paying the education costs for five other children that, enter, that are in her community, she is, now, um, uh, she is now investing money into a fund so that other women can start businesses in her community. And so Emmabet is flourishing, right? She, she is thriving, she is flourishing, she is doing well, but she is not just resting in that for herself. She's not just hoarding or holding on to all that she has never had before and saying, oh my gosh, I've never been able to have this kind of means. But she is saying, how can I take this flourishing and pass it to others? In her own brokenness, in her own humility of ex experience, she has a sense of empathy and a sense of compassion for others. And so she's willing to pass along. She's eager, she desires to pass along because she sees that in her community, if there is shalom and if there is flourishing only for her, there is not shalom and there is not flourishing until it is for all. So I imagine for us, what might this calling, what might this place of flourishing for all look like? And I look to Emma Bett as someone that I have so much to learn from. I, I imagine, what, what does this look like in my life? And I can tell you, um, uh, there, there was this like common story uh, in my younger, earlier years in ministry where multiple times, multiple times, um, you know, somebody would say or repeat something that they had heard that was really meaningful to them that I said, and they would give credit to somebody else. Many, many, many times. So anything, here's how it would work. Like, in two weeks, you won't even remember my face. I'm very forgettable. You won't remember my face. You won't remember anything about me. But something that I said that you thought was good, maybe, maybe, you'll give credit to whoever preaches next week or you'll give credit to Chris. Like, this was a story that happened in my life often. And it be, just became this joke, like, uh, not, and I, I never whined about this to anyone. This might be the first time I've ever shared this um, in public. So, so think less of me if you must. Um, but it, it became this story of, okay, God, I get it, right? You're just trying to humble me. Um, you want to humble me. Uh, right, okay, so it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Yeah, 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 right? Um, but then as life has gone on, I feel like that is not just like this place of growth for me. It's not just this sense of God saying, um, I have this area where you need to be humbled or this area where you need to grow and not feel like you get credit. But I've grown to see now that this is actually some kind of vocation for me. Like, as God willing, um, as God willing and much hard work um, on God's part, I've matured. I've started to come to see it's not just because I'm supposed to be humbled to not feel like I need credit for everything. But it's because part of my calling and part of my vocation as I'm coming to understand it is to find opportunities for others to be heard to find other opportunities for others to have voice, to find other uh, opportunities for others to bring and so that they can speak so that I can learn from them and so that others can learn from them and so that when the whole of all of us 
are able to speak and when the whole of all of us are able to lead and when the whole of all of us are able to shape what is being done, then that flourishing, that shalom, that jubilee might be available to more. And so for me, part of what this has looked like is just, just recognizing that it is not just for me to benefit from having a voice. It is not just for me, from my place of privilege, from my place of power to have a voice, but it is for me to help bring others and create opportunities for others to have thriving. And it's not just a matter of humility, but a matter of calling. And I still have such, such, such a long way to go, and I really want you to say nice things to me afterwards and in a few weeks. So don't, don't see me as this wise, old, humble, clearly called sage. Um, and so maybe what might that be for you? What might, what, might, what might be ways for you to understand that you too, even as you rest into these words of Jesus, even as you rest into these words of um, sight for the blind, even as you rest into these words of restoration, what might it mean for you too, though, to understand that there is also calling, that the shalom is not just for you, but that the shalom is also for others. One of the ways that, that I've uh, thought about this, especially just in our uh, North American church context, is we are so often, um, we, are, we so often just hold tight to this idea of we've got it, right? Like these words, in the same way that those in Nazareth might have had it, like we are the people. Like we are the people who really best understand what God is up to in this world. And so we're going to make sure that other people know what God is up to in this world. Uh, no doubt, sometime today, I found out that, uh, so Chris and I, when we get together, like we talk sports. And I found out today that he has a deep longing to talk sports because apparently nobody else in this church wants to talk about sports, and you never use, you never use um, sports uh, illustrations. Um, so apologies. This is going to be a really short sports illustration. But today is the Super Bowl, and no doubt, I mean, not no doubt, but there is a high likelihood that some person on the winning team after the game today will say, yeah, I just really feel like God was on our side. I don't think so. If it were the Broncos that won, then yes, God was on their side. But God was definitely not on their side in recent years. Um, but, but in a lot of ways, that represents this common, uh, this common posture, right? That especially for those of us who might be here, who might have been in part of a church for all of our life, that we have this idea of we are like those in Nazareth, those who deserve all the blessing that God has because we're the ones who get it. We're the ones who understand. We're the, we're the ones who know and understand God better because we've spent so much time in this or we've spent so much time studying. And yet Jesus says, yes, but this is for all. And there was something that um, Elijah needed to share here and there was something that Elisha needed to share here because people in other places also were formed and shaped in the image of God. And people in other places needed to be restored so that their views, their perspective, their experience could contribute to our understanding of who God is. So for you as Oak Church, and I, I don't really actually have doubt that there's not already some of this posture present in Oak Church, but for you as Oak Church, there is this place of not just that you are the huddled mass who get it and understand it, 
but that you are part of all who are made in God's image and that you bring your experience and your learning and your, your knowledge of who God is to the world so that it can live alongside what others are learning and their experience. And maybe for some, you have to name it. Well, that is the God that I know. And maybe for some, you just have to receive it and go, what is it that I am learning from God in this place and this experience from this one that is created in the image of God? Uh, in our church in Austin, um, I would often quote Leslie Newbigin, and he became to be known as that guy again because uh, I quoted him often. Um, but he is a, a formative theologian for me. And Leslie Newbigin's story is really uh, amazing to me. In the early 20th century, like the first half of the 20th century, he went away to India to do missions work in India. And he was there for uh, 40 or 50 years at a time where, you know, now, like, uh, we can be in touch with the pastor who works with them a bit daily through WhatsApp. There was no WhatsApp for Newbigin, right? And so after all that time, he came back to uh, England, and he came back and realized how much had changed, and that there was this um, little bit of church left in their society, but whereas when he left, the church was at the center of each community, right? It was like this driving force in the center of each community, and then by the time that he came back, it was no longer there. And so he started to write to the church in that time and say, look, I've just spent the last 40 years trying to discern and understand what does it mean to be the church when you are not at the center of community and when you are surrounded by people of all different ideas and all different faiths and all different backgrounds and trying to bring this voice of Jesus, trying to bring this, this voice of the spirit flowing out into this place where it's not already acknowledged. And so his writings are amazing for that perspective. But I'll have to say, he, he says this, um, and I remember the first time I read this, golly, 12 or 13 years ago, and I can't tell you how many times I've used it in a sermon because it's, it's changed how I understand what we're about as a church. He says this, to be chosen, to be elect, therefore does not mean that the elect are the saved and the rest are the lost. To be elect in Christ Jesus, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for his whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. See, the people in Nazareth, they were ready to receive, and they were ready for Jesus to do for them what they had been longing for for a long time. And I think Jesus was ready to do that because he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, this is ready. This jubilee is ready to come back. This shalom is ready to come back. But it's for all. It is not just for you. And uh, for you to be participants in it, for you to receive it, also means you are to partner in continuing this work. So Oak Church, you are called to be instigators of jubilee. And you are called to come and to this place each week to gather to celebrate that, but also to be reminded that you are the people not just who come and gather, but the people who are sent, the people who join and partner and co-create in the work of Jubilee and the work of Shalom. You are the instigators of Jubilee. Pray with me. God, I thank you for this people. I thank you for Oak Church. 
I thank you for the ways that I know just from observing them afar that they already pursue this. They already believe this. I thank you for the presence that they have in this community. And God, I also pray that Oak Church would continue to, to live this story, to rest in this story, to hope in this story, but also find ways to continue to co-create in this community. That as they experience the restoration, the healing, the growth, the maturity, the formation, that they will also extend shalom, that they will come alongside your work of, of spreading shalom out. They will look for the ways that uh, you are already bringing shalom through others and come alongside that. I pray, God, that Oak Church would be instigators of Jubilee. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This promise waiting to be fulfilled, this recovery of sight for the blind, right? Uh, the, the poor will be restored. And so Jesus names all of their longing in the midst of this oppression that they are up against. And he says, today this will be fulfilled in your hearing. But then Jesus goes on, and, and, I, and, and I don't want to uh, leave us with the idea, and this actually occurred to me for the first time. I've, I've studied this text many times and preached on this text a number of times. And I've always had this sense of, um, man, Jesus was really sticking it to his hometown, right, in what, in what we're about to get to. And I, I don't think that was the case. Maybe I'm just growing older and wiser, or maybe I'm wrong today, and maybe I was right before. Um, but I think there was a deep care and empathy for his people, right? This, this is for you. This flourishing, this shalom, this jubilee is due to you, and I hope you have it. But then he goes on to say, surely you will say to me, uh, physician, heal yourself. Surely you will say to me, Jesus, do that now. You have come, and you're saying you are the person to bring this, so do it. Bring it back. Remove our oppressors. And then he goes on to tell them two stories, a story of Elijah and a story of Elisha. And he tells them stories about how both of these um, heroes of their faith had been sent on to other places, not to people like them, to a widow in Zarephath, to Naaman the Syrian, had, had gone to people outside of their bounds and healed them and brought them restoration. And even in saying that much, it riled everything for them, right? It riled everything for them, this sense of, no, 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 no. Are you saying that the recovery, that the restoration, that the shalom, the flourishing, the jubilee, that you're not going to bring it here? You're saying that it's going to be bigger than this? You're saying that it's going to be wider than this? You're saying it's going to be beyond what we would consider the safe and secure boundaries where we think it should be? And so they decide to take him and throw him over a cliff. Yesterday I was reading, um, uh, reading a book right now by an indigenous American theologian named Randy Woodley called Shalom, Shalom and the Community of Creation. As, even as I was getting ready to continue doing some work on this, um, and this is what he had to say in there. He says this. He said, Shalom is communal, holistic, and tangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom or no one has shalom. As long as there are hungry people in a community that is well-fed, 
there can be no shalom. Where there are homeless and jobless people amidst the employed and wealthy, shalom cannot exist. Shalom is not for the many, while a few suffer, nor is it for the few, while many suffer. It must be available for everyone. And then he goes on even to this promise waiting to be fulfilled, this recovery of sight for the blind, right? Uh, the, the poor will be restored. And so Jesus names all of their longing in the midst of this oppression that they are up against. And he says, today this will be fulfilled in your hearing. But then Jesus goes on, and, and, I, and, and I don't want to... Uh, leave us with the idea, and this actually occurred to me for the first time. I've, I've studied this text many times and preached on this text a number of times, and I've always had this sense of, um, man, Jesus was really sticking it to his hometown, right, and what, and what we're about to get to. And I, I don't think that was the case. Maybe I'm just growing older and wiser, or maybe I'm wrong today, and maybe I was right before. Um, but I think there was a deep care and empathy for his people, right? This, this is for you. This flourishing, this shalom, this jubilee is due to you, and I hope you have it. But then he goes on to say, surely you will say to me, uh, physician, heal yourself. Surely you will say to me, Jesus, do that now. You have come, and you're saying you are the person to bring this, so do it. Bring it back. Remove our oppressors, and then he goes on to tell them two stories, a story of Elijah and a story of Elisha. And he tells them stories about how both of these um, heroes of their faith had been sent on to other places, not to people like them, to a widow in Zarephath, to Naaman the Syrian, had, had gone to people outside of their bounds and healed them and brought them restoration. And even in saying that much, it riled everything for them, right? It riled everything for them, this sense of, no, 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 no. Are you saying that the recovery, that the restoration, that the shalom, the flourishing, the jubilee, that you're not going to bring it here? You're saying that it's going to be bigger than this? You're saying that it's going to be wider than this? You're saying it's going to be beyond what we would consider the safe and secure boundaries where we think it should be? And so they decide to take him and throw him over a cliff. Yesterday I was reading, um, uh, reading a book right now by an indigenous American theologian named Randy Woodley called Shalom, Shalom and the Community of Creation. As, even as I was getting ready to continue doing some work on this, um, and this is what he had to say in there. He says this. He said, Shalom is communal, holistic, and tangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom or no one has shalom. As long as there are hungry people in a community that is well fed, there can be no shalom. Where there are homeless and jobless people amidst the employed and wealthy, shalom cannot exist. Shalom is not for the many, while a few suffer, nor is it for the few, while many suffer. It must be available for everyone. And then he goes on even to talk about, he, he read this quote, I'm like, I wonder if I can somehow um, connect this idea of shalom to jubilee. Like, I wonder if the Old Testament principles connect. And I kept reading yesterday morning. This changed my sermon, right? Because then I kept reading, and it's like, in the next chapter, talks about 
Shalom and Jubilee, and he talks about Jubilee connecting from Luke 4. I'm like, this is exactly what I needed today. So we have this story of Jubilee, this story of Shalom, this story of flourishing, this story of restoration that Jesus comes and promises to his people. But Jesus also comes and promises to all people. And it is for all. It, there is no shalom until there is shalom. There is no restoration for the few until there is restoration for all because it is this communal, holistic, interconnected reality that we as the people of Jesus now in Durham and in Phoenix and throughout the world are to participate with Jesus in bringing. The phrase that I like to think of it as is we are to be the instigators of Jubilee. Oak Church, you are called to be the instigators of Jubilee. So even as you sit and rest in the words of Jesus that were shared last week, even as you um, find rest and find hope and find longing and desire to experience that restoration, that recovery, that fullness, that flourishing, even as you hope for that, you also participate in that. You also co-create that work with Jesus, with God's purpose that is being spread forward into the world today. We are called to be instigators of Jubilee. So I was imagining a little bit like, what does this look like? What might this look like for us to be instigators of Jubilee, and I was reminded of uh, this story. This is actually a story Chris mentioned that I now work for a, a nonprofit called Help One Now, and one of the things that we do is we work in countries around the world. We come alongside local leaders, and it, now all of them are pastors, actually. We come alongside pastors, and we just help them to meet the needs in their community with what, whatever resources they say, like, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what we can do well, and so we try to come alongside them. And one of our leaders has started a, basically a business training program where they figured out rather than we just kind of help meeting the needs of the people uh, who are in poverty, what if we help them really take steps to move out of it? And so he's discovered and he's now sent hundreds of people through this program where they train them to start a business, give them a few startup funds, and they're just seeing them flourish. And so this is a woman named Emma Bett. And Emma Bett, uh, Emma Bett is a beautiful, amazing woman. And even in her own words, she is a strong woman. But she started a business, um, and not too soon, because shortly after she went through the program and shor shortly after she started a business, her husband became ill and was not able to work. But somehow through her business, she's actually started two businesses, somehow through her businesses now, she has been able to support her family. But even beyond the work that she has done to support her family, she is now... Uh, paying the, the education costs for five other children that are in her neighborhood. And beyond just paying the education costs for five other children that are, that are in her community, she is, now, um, uh, she is now investing money into a fund so that other women can start businesses in her community. So Emma Bett is flourishing, right? She, she is thriving, she is flourishing, she is doing well but she is not just resting in that for herself. She's not just hoarding or holding on to all that she has never had before and saying, oh my gosh, I've never been able to have this kind of means. 
but she is saying, how can I take this flourishing and pass it to others? In her own brokenness, in her own humility of ex experience, she has a sense of empathy and a sense of compassion for others. And so she's willing to pass along. She's eager. She desires to pass along because she sees that in her community, if there is shalom and if there is flourishing only for her, there is not shalom and there is not flourishing until it is for all. So I imagine for us, what might this calling, what might this place of flourishing for all look like? And I look to Emma Bett as someone that I have so much to learn from. I, I imagine, what, what does this look like in my life? And I can tell you, um, uh, there, there was this like common story uh, in my younger, earlier years in ministry where multiple times, multiple times, um, you know, somebody would say or repeat something that they had heard that was really meaningful to them that I said, and they would give credit to somebody else. Many, many, many times. So anything, here's how it would work. Like, in two weeks, you won't even remember my face. I'm very forgettable. You won't remember my face. You won't remember anything about me. But something that I said that you thought was good, maybe, maybe, You'll give credit to whoever preaches next week, or you'll give credit to Chris. Like, this was a story that happened in my life often. And it be, just became this joke, like, uh, not, and I, I never whined about this to anyone. This might be the first time I've ever shared this um, in public. So, so think less of me if you must. Um, but it, it became this story of, okay, God, I get it, right? You're just trying to humble me. Um, you want to humble me. Uh, right, okay, so it doesn't matter who gets the credit, yeah, 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 right? Um, but then as life has gone on, I feel like that is not just like this place of growth for me. It's not just this sense of God saying, um, I have this area where you need to be humbled or this area where you need to grow and not feel like you get credit. But I've grown to see now that this is actually some kind of vocation for me. Like, as God willing, um, as God willing and much hard work um, on God's part, I've matured. I've started to come to see it's not just because I'm supposed to be humbled to not feel like I need credit for everything. But it's because part of my calling and part of my vocation as I'm coming to understand it is to find opportunities for others to be heard to find other opportunities for others to have voice, to find other uh, opportunities for others to bring and so that they can speak so that I can learn from them and so that others can learn from them and so that when the whole of all of us are able to speak and when the whole of all of us are able to lead and when the whole of all, all of us are able to shape what is being done, then that flourishing, that shalom, that jubilee might be available to more. And so for me, part of what this has looked like is just, just recognizing that it is not just for me to benefit from having a voice. It is not just for me, from my place of privilege, from my place of power to have a voice, but it is for me to help bring others and create opportunities for others to have thriving. And it's not just a matter of humility, but a matter of calling. And I still have such, such, such a long way to go. And I really want you to say nice things to me afterwards and in a few weeks. So don't, don't see me as this wise, old, humble, clearly called sage. Um, and so maybe what might that be for you? What might, what might 
what might be ways for you to understand that you too, even as you rest into these words of Jesus, even as you rest into these words of um, sight for the blind, even as you rest into these words of restoration, what might it mean for you too, though, to understand that there is also calling, that the shalom is not just for you, but that the shalom is also for others. One of the ways that, that I've uh, thought about this, especially just in our uh, North American church context, is we are so often, um, we, are, we so often just hold tight to this idea of we've got it, right? Like these words, in the same way that those in Nazareth might have had it, like we are the people. Like we are the people who really best understand what God is up to in this world. And so we're going to make sure that other people know what God is up to in this world. Uh, no doubt, sometime today, I found out that, uh, so Chris and I, when we get together, like we talk sports. And I found out today that he has a deep longing to talk sports because apparently nobody else in this church wants to talk about sports and you never use, you never use um, sports uh, illustrations. Um, so apologies, this is going to be a really short sports illustration. But today's the Super Bowl. And no doubt, I mean, not no doubt, but there is a high likelihood that some person on the winning team after the game today will say, yeah, I just really feel like God was on our side. I don't think so. If it were the Broncos that won, then yes, God was on their side. But God was definitely not on their side in recent years. Um, but, but in a lot of ways, that represents this common, uh, this common posture, right? That especially for those of us who might be here, who might have been in part of a church for all of our life, that we have this idea of we are like those in Nazareth, those who deserve all the blessing that God has because we're the ones who get it. We're the ones who understand. We're the, we're the ones who know and understand God better because we've spent so much time in this or we've spent so much time studying. And yet Jesus says, yes, but this is for all. And there was something that um, Elijah needed to share here and there was something that Elisha needed to share here because people in other places also were formed and shaped in the image of God. And people in other places needed to be restored so that their views, their perspective, their experience could contribute to our understanding of who God is. So for you as Oak Church, and I, I don't really actually have doubt that there's not already some of this posture present in Oak Church, but for you as Oak Church, there is this place of not just that you are the huddled mass who get it and understand it, but that you are part of all who are made in God's image, and that you bring your experience and your learning and your, your knowledge of who God is to the world so that it can live alongside what others are learning and their experience. And maybe for some, you have to name it. Well, that is the God that I know. And maybe for some, you just have to receive it and go, what is it that I am learning from God in this place and this experience from this one that is created in the image of God? Uh, in our church in Austin, um, I would often quote Leslie Newbigin, and he became to be known as that guy again because uh, I quoted him often. Um, but he is a, a formative theologian for me. And Leslie Newbigin's story is really uh, amazing to me. In the early 20th century, like the first half of the 20th century, he went away to India to do missions work in India. 
and he was there for uh, 40 or 50 years at a time where, you know, now, like, uh, we can be in touch with the pastor who works with them a bit daily through WhatsApp. There was no WhatsApp for Newbigin, right? And so after all that time, he came back to uh, England, and he came back and realized how much had changed and that there was this um, little bit of church left in their society. But whereas when he left, the church was at the center of each community, right? It was like this driving force in the center of each community. And then by the time that he came back, it was no longer there. And so he started to write to the church in that time and say, look, I've just spent the last 40 years trying to discern and understand what does it mean to be the church when you are not at the center of community and when you are surrounded by people of all different ideas and all different faiths and all different backgrounds and trying to bring this voice of Jesus, trying to bring this, this voice of the spirit flowing out into this place where it's not already acknowledged. And so his writings are amazing for that perspective. But I'll have to say, he, he says this, um, and I remember the first time I read this, golly, 12 or 13 years ago, and I can't tell you how many times I've used it in a sermon because it's, it's changed how I understand what we're about as a church. He says this, to be chosen, to be elect, therefore does not mean that the elect are the saved and the rest are the lost. To be elect in Christ Jesus, and there is no other election, means to be incorporated into his mission to the world, to be the bearer of God's saving purpose for his whole world, to be the sign and the agent and the first fruit of his blessed kingdom, which is for all. See, the people in Nazareth, they were ready to receive, and they were ready for Jesus to do for them what they had been longing for for a long time. And I think Jesus was ready to do that because he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, this is ready. This jubilee is ready to come back. This shalom is ready to come back. But it's for all. It is not just for you. And uh, for you to be participants in it, for you to receive it, also means you are to partner in continuing this work. So Oak Church, you are called to be instigators of Jubilee. And you are called to come into this place each week to gather to celebrate that, but also to be reminded that you are the people not just who come and gather, but the people who are sent, the people who join and partner and co-create in the work of Jubilee and the work of Shalom. You are the instigators of Jubilee. Pray with me. God, I thank you for this people. I thank you for Oak Church. I thank you for the ways that I know just from observing them afar that they already pursue this. They already believe this. I thank you for the presence that they have in this community. And God, I also pray that Oak Church would continue to, to live this story, to rest in this story, to hope in this story, but also find ways to continue to co-create in this community. That as they experience the restoration, the healing, the growth, the maturity, the formation, that they will also extend shalom, that they will come alongside your work of, of spreading shalom out. They will look for the ways that uh, you are already bringing shalom through others and come alongside that. I pray, God, that Oak Church would be instigators of Jubilee. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.